on this episode of The Kinked Wire. Well, I think we're at really the tip of the iceberg. You know, I think this is very early. In my mid-stage of the career, I will probably not be practicing as this evolves into something that's a full standard of care in multiple joints. But outside of BPH, this is probably the biggest, uh, probably most impactful change I think we'll see in the embolization space over the next 10 years. Welcome to The King Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SIR's IR Quarterly Magazine. You can learn more at our website, sirweb.org slash And this episode is brought to you by Garibay LLC. Visit Garibay's interventional imaging solutions at garibay.com USA. In this episode, King Wire host Warren Drakoff speaks with interventional radiologist Sandeep Bagla about the prospects for genicular artery embolization to help patients with osteoarthritis of the knee, the state of research in this promising treatment, and how interventional radiologists might get involved. Well, great. We've got uh, a really exciting episode today, and, and we have so much to cover. I sort of have a feeling this is going to be a part one, but let's <laughs> let's do what we can. I'm really, really pleased to have Dr. Sandeep Bagla here, and we're going to cover uh, some really interesting territory today, talking about geniculate artery embolization, osteoarthritis. So first of all, thanks a lot for being here. Thanks for having me. Tell me, where did this all come from? How did, how did you get to this place with genicular artery embolization? You know, genicular artery embolization has been around for many years. I mean, more than 10 or 15 years in the setting of hemarthrosis. In the setting of knee replacement, hemarthrosis, which is spontaneous and recurrent, can occur very uncommonly, far less than 1%. And genicular artery embolization has been around, whether using coils or beads or gel foam, for a long time now. In sporadic case reports, the largest case report was around uh, 15 patients in Journal of Arthroplasty more than five years ago. But in the setting of osteoarthritis, it's only been since around 2015, where Dr. Okuno in Japan actually first published his experience on performing embolization in the setting of arthritis. Yeah, I came across a paper you wrote, uh, I don't know, it's probably about 10 years ago or something, where, you know, exactly that, spontaneous hemarthrosis and doing the procedure. So is it similar in a way to how UAE evolved where, oh, you know, we're doing for postpartum hemorrhage and, oh, by the way, you know, three years later, the fibroid disappeared. Did it sort of evolve that way? Interestingly, in the Japanese IR world, Dr. Okuno actually developed this procedure in and around the setting of embolization for multiple musculoskeletal conditions. So it actually began in and around the time that he was performing embolization for frozen shoulder and other conditions like tennis elbow. So the Japanese had been utilizing embolization for obviously just like us for other things like bleeding, but had stumbled on this improvement in pain in musculoskeletal conditions and actually applied it to multiple sites. And his first site, which gained probably the largest popularity, of course, just because of the prevalence of the disease was osteoarthritis. How do we approach it here in the States that may differ in Japan vis-a-vis IRB, things like that? If this is something you want to start in your practice or hospital or what have you, what, you know, what's facing you? There are a couple of things that are slightly different here in the U.S. than uh, in Japan. So one is, let's start with, I guess, the dominant embolic that's being utilized. In Japan, the dominant embolic that's being utilized is imipenem silostatin, which is an antibiotic or primaxin here as it's marketed in the United States. But in Japan, this antibiotic is utilized actually as a temporary embolic agent in the setting of GI hemorrhage, but it was utilized most dominantly in the setting of musculoskeletal conditions by Dr. Okuno. They have done cases with permanent embolic uh, spherical embolic agents, but overall, the vast majority of cases in Asia have been performed with temporary embolic or antibiotic. 
So in the U.S., I would say just from a technical aspect, that's primarily the main difference. And this probably has a lot to do with some regulatory issues, obviously IR comfort level in the United States, utilizing uh, permanent or spherical embolic agents. And then, of course, you touched on clinical studies, research, IRB, et cetera. I think the big difference when it comes to uh, you doing and performing a procedure like this, which is novel in the IR community here in the United States, there are a few questions to ask. You know, I think the first probably most important question to ask is, is this procedure ready for widespread adoption by interventional radiology? That lends itself to sort of a, a larger question of, you know, is the orthopedic community going to accept this as a good alternative uh, or bridge before knee replacement surgery? Is there enough clinical data out there to demonstrate that it's not only efficacious in the short term and long term, but is it safe, right? Do we know mm -hmm. that it's going to positively or negatively impact the patient before or after knee replacement? So these are questions we probably have to ask. You know, in my personal opinion at this time, widespread adoption by those who um, I think would love to just get on board and start doing it because it is an attractive procedure because it's obviously novel and, and interventional radiologists as a whole love to do embolization. But I think if they're getting into it, initially, the recommendations I think for most people would say get involved through some organized clinical research study, which of course would involve uh, getting an IRB uh, approval and, and actually an investigational device exemption approval from the FDA because there are no FDA-approved products for embolization in the setting of knee pain. When you approach it then, what's, so what's your sort of patient selection criteria or you know, how do you go about it? I think you know, for us, piggybacking on our clinical trial experience, if we were to look at who does best in terms of their outcomes for genicular artery embolization, there are a few things we ask. So one is, does the patient have pain that's reproducible? Okay. Can you actually palpate an area on the knee and say, okay, this is an area where there's pain, this is where the patient states the most pain comes from, because that indicates that there's an underlying synovitis in this area. And that's really what we're targeting with genicular artery embolization. So first is, I think, if it's palpable pain. Second is, from an x-ray standpoint or MRI standpoint, we like to get earlier osteoarthritic patients, because if you take a grading scale of one to four, those who have the most severe scale, say grade four, they may get a very short-lived effect, if at all. And the primary reason is because a lot of their inflammation is burned down and they're more in a fibrotic stage of osteoarthritis. And embolization really is targeting that inflammatory process. So one is, are they early enough to be treated? And two is, do they have palpable reproducible pain? What sort of recommendations are there from, you know, like the research consensus panel and those kinds of things? I mean, does that sort of correlate with what you're doing? So it's interesting you say that. I think um, right now, in terms of consensus, there is not a, I would say, uh, overall consensus in terms of where, what direction we should be heading in, in terms of what the next clinical trials are. That'll probably be developed over the next 12 to 18 months. What we've seen so far here in the United States is we published our initial pilot study of uh, 20 patients in JVIR, and our subsequent study should be out here in just a couple months, which was a randomized control study against sham. And you know, when any pain indication for doing a procedure, whether kyphoplasty, vertebroplasty, or, or genicular embolization for osteoarthritic pain, a sham study is very important. So we felt the need to go from that pilot study to a, a sham controlled study. And other, I would say, single arm studies we'll see that will come uh, to be published here in the United States over the next, I'd say, 12 to 24 months will come out. But there does need to be a consensus, of course, in the society about what other clinical research we need to do, whether comparing the procedure to genicular nerve ablation or injections or other standard of care. And then, you know, are, are you going to be developing or do you think there'll be a development of guidelines of, you know, how many arteries to treat, whether to do both knees, staged approaches, 
ipsilateral access, those kinds of things? Is that the kinds of stuff that will be involved as well? Absolutely. I think as we've learned with other procedures that can vary so much in technique, take prostate embolization, for example, and this will definitely be true in the setting of knee and shoulder. So I think your question is right on. There are going to be uh, many improvements and I would say sort of best practices for how to perform the procedure, even in the clinical trials that have been performed to date. And if you look at the, the most recent data that's been published either out of the UK or in, here in the US in the most recent SIR meeting, there's a lot of variability in technique in terms of number of arteries embolized. And this may be actually the first most important thing is if you have pain in a significant area, which arteries need to be embolized to actually address that? And, you know, like you said, how many? And I think to what degree, you know, what's okay. the end point? And as we've seen with uterine artery embolization, as that was studied many years ago, this is something that we're going to have to identify. And then the ancillary things of access, ipsilateral, contralateral, catheter size or, or catheter shapes and wire types, that'll come with technical advancements over the years as well. It's kind of exciting. I mean, I wasn't, uh, I, I'm old, but I'm not, I'm not old enough to have been <laughs> around, you know, for the real, you know, the beginnings of UAE or anything, but I, you know, I'm, I'm like you, I, you know, have seen the evolution. So it's kind of cool to be, you know, for you, I think, to be really on the, on the cutting edge, so to speak, in the, the ground floor of this. It's amazing. You, you know, you said a couple of things that really intrigued me as well, you know, partly in the Japanese experience, and you mentioned something about shoulders. So do you see this potentially expanding to other diseased joints as well? Absolutely. You know, shoulder is of particular interest of mine in addition to knee, and primarily for two reasons. One is the incidence of the disease is, is pretty staggering, the number of people who get frozen shoulder. You know, it's over 200,000 people annually that get frozen shoulder. And, and although the disease can be self-limiting in most of the patients, it's really disabling. And if you see or know somebody who has frozen shoulder, you know, the inability to scratch their back or put a shirt or jacket on mm. properly or a t-shirt, it's really disabling. And, and the symptoms can last not just months, but can, can in certain individuals progress to years. And what I find most attractive, you know, about this procedure, unlike some of the other procedures in, I'd say, disease processes that interventional radiologists find themselves deep in, you know, and take fibroids again as an example, or BPH, there are many options to treat those diseases, fibroids, mm -hmm. BPH. But in the setting of frozen shoulder, there are very limited options. And I think these patients who undergo really just physical therapy, because not much else works in terms of joint mm. injection, surgery is really not performed except for late stage patients. Orthopedic surgeons are, in my experience, very welcoming to this idea. We did a pilot study here on 20 patients, uh, which again should be published here shortly, of uh, embolization in the setting of adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder. And, and to be honest, the results are even more staggering than me in terms of the really? degree of uh, improvement. And I, I always remember what one of the orthopedic surgeons in this area, Samir Nagda, told me. He's a world-famous orthopedic surgeon, especially in the shoulder space. And what he told me is, Sonny, you know, when you put a scope into the inside of the shoulder and a patient's got frozen shoulder, the entire inner capsule is completely red and hyperemic and edematous. And, and he said, so for me, you guys doing this actually will likely target what's going on underneath. And that gave us some degree of confidence as we started on that clinical study. So to answer your question, yes, I think embolization in the setting of musculoskeletal pain is, is really, well, I think we're at really the tip of the iceberg. I, you know, I think this is very early. In my mid-stage of the career, I will probably not be practicing as this evolves into something that's full standard of care in multiple joints, but it, it's mm. great and exciting to see. I think it, for me, outside of BPH, this is probably the, the biggest, uh, probably most impactful change I think we'll see in the embolization space over the next 10 years. That's great. Yeah, that's that's really phenomenal. You mentioned, you know, your orthopedic colleague, and we sort of got into that a little bit, uh, you know, in terms of referral patterns and, and so on. And as we've seen, 
Uh, and you, you pointed out in, in, in other areas that we're embolizing, there are surgeons, uh, if you will, who may be reticent perhaps to, to send patients. What's your experience with that? And, how, and what do you think about educating? And sort of as a sub question, as I think we've also seen, at least in the uh, fibroid space, uh, you know, is this something we can go directly to patients eventually or to their primary care providers for? I think at this stage, there's probably a danger in doing that because mm-hmm. bypassing specialists will probably will be seen as presumptuous that we have enough clinical data, practice guidelines, okay. et cetera, experience to say that. But down the road, absolutely. I think, you know, again, that may be a five to 10 year plan, but I think in the initial five years, getting the buy-in from orthopedic surgeons is critical. And, and the reason why is similar to other disease processes, like you mentioned with fibroids, the patients are obviously going to be going through orthopedic evaluation regardless. And there are certain core clinical concepts that interventionalists despite understanding pain very well, you know, the, the idea of understanding instability, degeneration, and, and certain things that really orthopedic surgeons can dis- distinguish and differentiate from typical just, I have pain, you know, as a dominant complaint. One is really important. I mean, they, we have to respect that they have a level of expertise with this that is far beyond what IR will have and probably will ever have. And so I think that's an important thing that we need to navigate and make sure we work with them. So if you're in a local community and, and you want to perform this procedure in the setting of, say, clinical research, et cetera, I would encourage those who'd like to do that to absolutely get their local orthopedic surgeon on board. You know, initially they will look at it as voodoo, but I think if it's done, and this is why I stress the importance of doing it in the setting of a controlled setting. Because then when they see these outcomes and they understand that it's controlled, studied, data is collected the right way, then they'll become a believer. But before that, um, just by reading a few studies that are performed by a select number of interventionists around the world, it's it's often difficult to say, hey, we should bring this to our community um, because it may reflect poorly on them. And I think that's something we always fail to recognize. I think any physician specialty is that when one physician refers a patient to you, if the outcomes are not good or there are complications, it unfortunately doesn't just reflect poorly on you, it reflects poorly on that specialty, you know, that they've adopted something and recommended something that may not be ready yet. And I think that's probably critical. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a, a really good point. And I think this sort of careful, cautious approach, evidenced and data-based approach that you're, that you're suggesting really bodes well for, well, for the procedure and the patients, but, but also I think for our specialty, and it actually gives me pause for a second, and I, I don't know the answer for this, and there may not be an answer, but I'm just wondering, you know, we're now in the femoral artery and treating branches and more distally and so on and so forth. There's a lot of other people in those arteries, uh, other specialists, yeah. shall we say, but is there a risk that somebody who isn't perhaps practicing as carefully, maybe in another specialty, say, oh, you know, I'm just going to run with this and, you know, we sort of have these patients anyway, and, and we're just going to you know, do every knee that we find when we're doing our PAD work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the elephant in the room is, can this procedure be done by anybody else? And the truth is yes. And what will prevent that and maximize the ability for any specialty, right? You know, whether it's IR, vascular surgery, cardiology, or orthopedic surgery to get involved in this procedure Mm -hmm. is to really study it and have a good deep understanding and to avoid having, you know, I would say a widespread adoption before it's ready with maybe not ideal techniques or varying techniques which then lead to poor outcomes, right? Because if Dr. X in city Y is having outcomes that are say, you know, 50% improvement 
that may become the standard in that community where Dr. B is having outcomes that are having 90% success. Mm -hmm. So that may allow people to say, well, you know what, actually the success rates are not so high and I can accept the fact that I'm not as good as, a, as an interventional radiologist doing the procedure, but I'll do it because my outcomes are, are acceptable by what mm. the local community allows. And I think the best way for us to ensure that we provide the best service to the patient is that we really have a deep understanding. And if we do that, then although other people may be technically able to do the procedure, which I'm confident they are, they may not have the better, deeper clinical understanding of how to manage these patients, what works better or not, and what would lead to complications. Because I think ultimately that's what's protected the embolization space from other specialties. You're right. There is that component of embolization does add an additional risk layer or comfort layer, I suppose, that, you know, if you didn't sort of grow up doing that, that may be a, a wall you don't want to climb. I think you're right. I actually just had this conversation with somebody yesterday about the likelihood of competition and, and barriers to entry in IR. And actually, one of the points we made is, you know, when you talk about opening an artery, right, and performing angioplasty or stem placement, for example, there's there's very limited barrier to entry because the results will oftentimes result in a positive result for the patient. Yep. And even if you're unsuccessful, it may not really impact them. But when you're closing an artery, the likelihood that you can cause injury is far greater. And I think this is something that we always have to keep in mind. Yeah, that's very well put. And um, and it's not, you know, as, as I think you suggested too, it's not, well, IR is inherently better than, it's just, you know, <laughs> this is this is what you grow up doing when you're training. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, at, at three in the morning when you're doing that GI bleed, you're, you know, you're training for these kinds of interventions. I certainly don't want to be in the heart opening up an LAT, I, you know, that's... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And those subtle differences of, you know, mixing embolics, understanding spheres versus non-spherical particles and visualization and, you know, contrast mixing, it, you know, like you said, these are things that are inherent, that are not learned in a course very easily and quickly like by those who did not, I would say, grow up in this space. And and that's something that's important. I think that's it can't be understated because even ourselves, right? We can't say that we learned it either in, in a period of a month or two no. months or three months. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's important. Yeah. I, I mean, it's the kind of thing, my idea of an embolization endpoint, if somebody asks me, well, when do you know when you're done? You know, whether it's a GI bleed, a fibroid, whatever. I, I don't know when it's when it's done. You know, I mean, it's just, yeah. it's very, I don't know. You just sort of say, okay, well, that's enough. Good. You're exactly right. You're exactly, you're exactly right. So listen, I know we're we're running out of time, and you know, there's there's a bunch more that I certainly want to talk about. So I hope we can have a, a part two uh, and and pick your brain some more. But as we wind down here, a question we've been asking all all of our guests this year. If you know you're you're really on the cutting edge and being an interventional radiologist, that really sort of ties in with our specialty. But if for whatever reason you weren't an interventional radiologist, what do you think you'd be doing and why? I think undoubtedly I'd be a cook. Okay. You know, I think, I think, you know my, my biggest passion, of course, outside of interventional radiology is, is, is cooking, cooking and eating. So uh, <laughs> and I think, you know, it has the same degree of novelty that mm. interventional radiology does in creativity. So if I were to pick one thing, I would definitely go to cooking school. That's great. I've, I, that, I've never heard a better analogy, I think, to what we do. I mean, it, it really, it really sort of is like that. Yeah, you can look, I guess you can't, you can look at a cookbook, but it's, you got, you got to know when to put in a pinch of this and a dash of that. And, yeah. Oh, uh, well, this has been terrific. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to having you on again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mark, for your time. And uh, thanks for the invitation and, and to society as well. That was Dr. Sandeep Bagala explaining the importance of research before GAE might become a common IR treatment. 
We thank Dr. Bagua for his time, Garibay for supporting this episode, and you for listening to The King Choir. Our host is Dr. Warren Craycock. Our editor is Dr. Jamin Shaw. Our manager is Dr. Jason Fisher. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at irq at surweb.org.